Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season three, episode two, and today we are going to be talking about the Coen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis from 2013. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz. I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matty, how you doing? Doing pretty good. How about you? Good. Uh, this is our first time recording midweek, so a little bit of a little bit of a change to the routine. So if we seem uh, maybe a little more tired or maybe a little better researched, then you know why. For sure, it's a for me. It's definitely a little less tired uh, because it's on a Wednesday now instead of a Monday. So if you notice a little more energy, this is why. Oh, you you gain energy as the week progresses? I do. Yeah, I actually really do. I have a hard time sleeping always Sunday nights. Uh, And so Mondays just are a drag and it's just hard. And so, I don't know. I get better on Wednesdays through Fridays for sure. All right, nice. Well, we got high energy Maddie. Ooh, I do. So I won't give the full spiel that I gave last week on the new structure for the podcast. If you want to hear that, you can go back and listen to last week's episode. But if this is your first time tuning in, the way the podcast is structured is you can listen to the first half of the podcast, which will be relatively spoiler free. And then you can make your decision. There will be a little pause for music and for to take a break and you can make a decision whether you want to watch the movie or dive right into the spoiler section if you've already watched the movie or if you don't care about spoilers. So that's the way the podcast is now set up. And yeah, without any further ado, let's dive in a little bit to personal history. I think neither one of us had seen this film, but what what sort of expectations did you come in with, Matt? I had very little expectations for this film. I essentially knew nothing about it except that Oscar Isaac was in it. Uh, and then uh-huh. it was directed by the Coen brothers, but I only knew it was directed by the Coen brothers because the day before we were set to watch it, you had mentioned that it was directed by the Coen brothers. So mm. other than that, I did not, I basically knew nothing about this film going in. So it was a big, you know, I, it was kind of funny when I sat down to watch it because I pulled it up. I was going to just kind of start it while I was supervising D and D club pulled it up, listened to the first, like, two minutes of it, and I was like, oh, wait, nope, this is one I definitely need to watch, like, at home, in quiet, uh, <laughs> and all of that. Just a, a very quick thing. That's The film is about the folk music scene in 1961 Greenwich Village. And so just a, a very brief kind of overview. And so... I did not expect that at all, and it was a a very big surprise for me to hear that. With that said, I'm very familiar with folk music. Mm. It's a, it's, when I was growing up, it was a lot of the music that I would listen to. My grandparents on my mom's side were movement hippies, and so, you know, they were involved with all this kind of stuff, and they would sing folk songs all all the time. Um, my grandma constantly sings folk songs. I knew every song in this film, except for the one in the middle that we'll talk about. But otherwise, I knew all the songs as I heard them. So that was that was really strange. But uh, my grandma is completely tone deaf. So she would sing them, but not in key. So it was a surprise to hear oh, what no. they actually <laughs> sound like. 
Uh, oh, that's that melody. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, that's what that song is. It's really good. So, you know, no disrespect to Grandma. It's a, uh, she. She's aware of all this. But And, you know, this is the, the kind of lifestyle that, that, that they lived. And so they were familiar with this scene. And they, uh, it's, I saw a lot of them in this film. And so that I connected with a lot. And on top of that, when I was in fourth grade, I had this teacher that made us memorize a bunch of folk songs. So the ones I didn't learn from my grandma, I learned from Mrs. Livingston uh, in fourth grade. So thanks, Mrs. L. Yeah, she's great. So, but there you go. Cool. Yeah, and I so I knew about as much as you did. I knew I had mentioned to Mare that we were watching it, and she said, "Oh, we watched that one." And I was like, "I'm pretty sure we have not watched that one." And she was like, "Yeah, it's the one with the musician and the cat." And I was like, no, I have not seen that movie. So I did know that it was about a musician and a cat and that Oscar Isaac, I actually knew that the cast was really stellar because I had looked it up the week before. So I knew the cast who was in it. And then I, so up until about three weeks ago, after our Jurassic Park podcast, I also watched the second Jurassic Park movie, The The Lost World. That's the second one. Yes. Yeah. So up until that point, the directors that I had seen the most movies by was tied at eight for the Coen brothers and Spielberg. And then I watched that movie and then Spielberg pulled into the lead with nine. And then now that I've watched Inside Lewin Davis, they're tied again at nine. So the Coen brothers are directors that I have a pretty strong affinity for and someone and I know what I'm getting in for when I go into a movie of theirs. For sure. It's in, in comparison, I've only seen five Coen Brothers films, including this one. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but I have seen 19 Spielberg films. So uh, yep, you got me crushed there. <laughs> yeah. So a little bit different on that perspective, but it's, you know, the Coen Brothers have a very unique style and tone to the kinds of films they do. And this is, it fits right in it, right in the pocket of their kinds of films, it felt like to me. But it also felt a little bit more... Well, we can get into that reactions, but I was just going to say it felt a little bit more heartfelt or something like that than some of the other ones. Mm, interesting, yeah. Well, we'll talk about that a little later. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the time periods here. We're going to talk about two different time periods because there's the period in which the movie came out in which it was released, which was... December of 2013, although I think it that was its U.S. release, but it was actually released internationally before that, I believe. Uh, it had a limited release in New York and L.A. first, and that was in the middle of mm-hmm. November. Um, and then it the release widened in December, the U.S. wide release. So, got um, it, got it, got yeah, it. So that's where that goes in. Yeah, and I think we don't have to talk too much about 2013, but the thing that I was thinking about when I was thinking about this year is that this is smack dab in the middle of the Obama optimism. So Obama had just been signed in for his second term and previously the year before had defeated Mitt Romney. And this, I I was looking back at some of our chats around this time, and I don't know if this speaks to just what we were talking about or um, like if it talks too much about me or about the the time, but I think this was before 
it had become quite clear just how detrimental the midterms of 2012 were going to be for the Democrats trying to do anything, pass any meaningful legislation or, you know, even (laughs) get maybe get some Supreme Court nominees through. And so I think I think that matters a lot because when the country is happier, when people are when there aren't like huge bad things going on, then I think it's a lot easier to take in more challenging pieces of art. It the the need to have escapism in your art goes down a little bit because you're a little bit more fulfilled in life. And this is I'm obviously painting in broad strokes here. This does not apply to everyone in the country at that time. But so I think that feeling contributed, helps contribute to the critical success of this movie. And so a, a few things that I had pulled that, or a few things that we had pulled that I think talks about that feeling this time. So in June of this year, the Defense of Marriage Act was overturned and same-sex marriage became legal throughout the country. And this this is a moment that I remember extremely well. I remember being nervous about it coming up. And then when the news finally hit, <laughs> texting a lot of my friends, but particularly my gay friends, many of them who were in long-term relationships and just being so unbelievably happy for them and so relieved and feeling like we were on top of the world and that it was just all forward from here. Yeah, it was a it was a huge moment and one of the things that I was thinking about with this is the this film Inside Lewin Davis is loosely based on the life of Dave Van Ronk who mm-hmm. coincidentally was in the first wave of people arrested in the Stonewall riots. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, so he he's he's straight, but he was there in Greenwich Village and when the riots were going on, he rushed over there because he had a lot of friends that were LGBT and he was concerned about all of that and so the police arrested him. Well, Arrested, they beat him up and locked him, chained him to, like, a pipe in a building and left him there for hours while the riots were going on. And then he was arrested and taken in and held in custody. And so when I read that and then saw that um, the Defense Marriage Act was overturned the same year, like, you know, that's a lot of synergy there in in that story. Yeah. And then the... Something that you had pulled, that was a some something that represented social progress at the time. But in on December 6th of that year, the U.S. jobs report hit a five-year low in terms of unemployment numbers. So not only generally socially trending upward, also fiscally or economically supposedly tra- trending upward as well. Yeah, and for me, it was a big year because it was when I got my job that I have now, um, my first Mm -hmm. job that like ever had benefits or like a living wage. Um, yeah. So I really felt that, uh, that difference in just the, the way that I was looking at the world and things like that, because, you know, I had enough money to pay basic necessities and I had healthcare. I got to go to the doctor for like the first time in 
10 years, something like that. Um, so for me, it was a, it was a pretty big year. Uh, as far as that yeah, goes. and I I remember that happening for you, and it would not be too much longer. It would have been April of 2014 when I started the job that I'm currently in. So the, my first full time job with with benefits. Yeah, and that was yeah, it was a big. Some of that just happened to be where we were in our lives at that time. We happened to be at the age where <laughs> where that kind of thing happens. We were, yeah, where that kind of thing happens, but. It did. It it felt zeitgeisty. It felt. It did. Like it. Yeah. It did for sure. Um, and you had a couple other things that you pulled from this year, yeah. Yes, I did. I have two things that I added on here, but I also have one that's not on the list, and it's uh, what I'll get to. It's kind of. Uh, you'll remember it though when we get there. So, uh, a few weeks before this came out in September twenty fourth, Agents of Shield released. The TV oh, show. Yeah. So I don't know if you you know remember when that came out, but this is. I do. I remember where I was when I watched the pilot. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I remember this very clearly as well. And you know, I think the reason why I want to put Agents of Shield on there is because is not so much because of the show or how impactful the show happened to be, but because it felt like it was right where the MCU was really actually starting to get going. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, you'd had Avengers, but then you'd had Iron Man 3 and Thor of the Dark World and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all those things that had come out afterwards. And Winter Soldier is somewhere in there as well. And it felt like, you know, this is kind of where that Marvel trend felt to me like it was really solidified and we were going to see three or four Marvel movies every single year that would be the biggest box office thing of the year uh, and that you could just count on that like you know like on your calendar and the challenge of a film like Lewin Davis going up against that kind of system is kind of fascinating and you see the that really harms Lewin Davis's box office prospects it doesn't go up against a Marvel film directly but that kind of box office situation was a really challenging time for something like this yeah, I hadn't really thought about how this is sort of right at that time where the stranglehold that the superhero movies and the MCU in particular that people complain about being in existence now, this is about right where it starts to congeal. Basically everything in the, as you said, the fallout from Avengers of 2012. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like the stranglehold was actually a lot stronger in like that time period because it was before the advent of like so many streaming services where you could watch independent film more easily mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah, and yeah so a lot the the box office at the theater was so stringent and so competitive at the time period yeah there was no i don't i don't think anyone netflix i don't think was even creating original content at that point i don't think much so. less uh original movies yeah so it's it's it was you're seeing the changes though of how everything's going to happen and so it's kind of i don't know it's it was this kind of liminal space this transition year so i find that really fascinating it looks like it looks like house of cards which was netflix's first original 
first original material actually came out February 1st of 2013. So it had happened for the first time, but it was, I think people were still pretty skeptical of it. I know I was pretty skeptical of it. And it was like a big deal that there were things that had never aired on TV and they were just going straight to your streaming service. And at the time it was a big deal. And I think people are still arguing about it now that Netflix just dropped them all at once. You can just watch all of them. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that Lewin Davis is the kind of film that nowadays would be extremely likely to be bought by Netflix for a Netflix release. Something like The Irishman or something like that. And probably would have gotten a lot of viewership from people that... People watch these kinds of things when they release on Netflix. If you go and look at the response that people have, I it amazes me how many people watch random indie content they they abuse on like people just it's on netflix they just turn it on um and so i think that if inside lewin davis had come out like two years later that it probably would have been picked up by netflix and had a completely different impact on on the film industry and the social consciousness well it's not i don't think it's just they it's not that they just would be released on Netflix or on a streaming service now. The We're going to talk about the Coen brothers here in a little bit, but Joel Cohen, one of the two Coen brothers, his latest film, The Tragedy of Macbeth, was released on Apple TV in, at the end of last year. So I think <laughs> I yeah. think your supposition was sort of proven correct. I don't actually know. Was it released in theaters, Tragedy of Macbeth? Yes. It was, so it was released yeah, on both. It, it did have a theater release as well. Got it. So then the other thing that I added on here, which I, I felt I added this because it felt like it connected with the Coen brothers. Uh, 2013, September 29th, was the end of Breaking Bad. Breaking oh, Bad's wow. final episode. And it feels like they're very spiritually related, Breaking Bad and Coen's, Coen brothers' films. They feel like they're of the same genre, of the same ethos of, you know, just the the way that they approach cinematography and film writing and using humor, but also looking at rural America and uh, looking at everyman characters, looking at everyman characters and things like that. And so everyman characters with a specific anti-hero bias yes exactly exactly so it feels like it fits in really well with that and you know it leads to later on the debut of one of my favorite shows uh, better call saul but you know this all fits like it feels like it fits in really well yeah so oh and then one other thing that i wanted to say from 2013 so the 2014 billboard music awards gave Best Album to the 2020 Experience, which was an album that was released March 15th, 2013. And I don't are you familiar with this album? Nope, Matt? I'm not. Mm. Well, you'll certainly be familiar with the artist who released the album because it is none other than Justin Timberlake. Ah. Who, of course... Is in this uh, film. Yeah. Is in this film. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, that's interesting. I haven't listened to it. I'm not familiar with it at all. You know, I've never been uh, much of one to listen to much of JT's music, but I might have to go give this one, uh, check it out. Yeah, I've never been a um, huge fan of his either, but really just out of ignorance rather than any sort of dislike. But I was just surprised that he did this movie 
the same year that he had a Billboard Music Awards winning uh, Best Album released. I I don't know. I, I guess it makes sense when you think about it, but I sort of assumed he just had a bunch of time to make a movie and maybe wasn't making critically acclaimed albums at the time. <laughs> yeah. I was wrong. For what it's worth, you, you know, he he didn't work that long on on this movie. And he'd been in the social network, what was it, three years before that? Uh, so I, th- I think it was 2010, yeah. Yeah, so I think he was trying to make kind of a run at, at acting, and he was seen more as like a the social network people love and i think that he was seen as more of a uh, more of an actor like a legitimate actor and so i think that contributes to him getting the part for this film as well yeah absolutely do you have anything else you want to say about 2013 or should we talk a little bit about 1960 i got one more 2013 thing um so 2013 was also like financially a very good year for me but it was also a terrible year for me because it was the year that my sister was killed in a car accident that's right um and so you know i this came out it's one that I didn't watch uh, when it came out. It was on my radar and I had kind of wanted to watch it, but then I didn't. I just like seen that it was coming out and I was like, oh, that looks like, you know, an interesting prestige movie. And looking back, I can only think that, you know, when it was the winter break, when I normally would have gone to see that movie, that, you know, it was Christmas time and with my family and all that stuff. And it was the first Christmas that, you know, my sister was was gone. And I think that probably contributed to not going to see this film. And additionally, I'm actually kind of glad I didn't watch it at that time. Because I don't think that I would have reacted to it as well if I'd watched it then. Uh, for, one, for one thing, there's, there's a scene involving driving uh, that there's some moments that maybe are a little bit dangerous. And... I have a hard time with that nowadays when I see films like that. It's And when they take me by surprise, it, it still kind of triggers me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just can only imagine if I'd watched it at that time period that, that I would have had a hard uh, emotional reaction to the film. And I'm glad that I watched it later, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I had forgotten when when that had happened so that makes a lot of sense you almost certainly were not in a good place to watch a movie like this you know (laughs) you you would have much rather gone to see frozen or uh the hobbit movie that was out yeah which i saw both of those so you know (laughs) makes sense yeah all right let's talk a little bit about 1961 because this movie is very clear that it's set in 1961, and it's clear that it's set in February, I believe, over the course of a week in 1961. And so this is yes, like one week, seven days in 1961. Yeah. And it's a very, there's kind of no other time this movie really could happen because the. The, so rock music was already starting to form. Elvis had released his first singles in 1954, and then over the course of 57 to 59, the further seeds of rock and roll would start to start to come out and, and you know take the take the world by storm. And then in when was it 1959, Motown released their first album. Although their heyday would be from 
1961 to 1971. And once, once rock music really gets going, the folk resurgence really kind of calms down. There just isn't as much room for the folk resurgence anymore. And But then the other part of the problem is the idea of the LP and this movie revolves around his LP and or at least he references his LP the so I believe the first LP was released in 1942 but when they were first released it was really just like for classical music and it didn't really start to be used I think the first rock LP if I'm remembering correctly was 1957 but if you're looking at like the releases of that time and the big releases until around 1960 maybe late 1959 almost every major release is singles because that's what people were buying people didn't have record players in their homes and so the idea of a small indie artist having a full record that they were going to try and hawk would it wouldn't have rang true so there's really just this one little moment of time where where this movie could take place and i think it's clear they did their research and that's that's why they landed here a couple things from 1961 specifically that i wanted to just shout out so we could place ourselves on february on january 15th motown signed the supremes on February 9th, a little band called The Beatles were back in the UK from their Hamburg tour. So that was, of course, John, Paul, George, and Ring. not Ringo. They didn't, no, they didn't have Ringo oh. yet. No, it was, and Pete, and Pete Best. So uh, Right, yeah. I knew this, but it saw it in the notes, so <laughs> I felt like I had to, I felt like I had to say it. Yeah, I, I, I should have teed you up better. It's an unscripted podcast. And the, so the Beatles, their first single wouldn't be released until October 5th of 1962. So that that's about how much time we have before that world explodes. And then a few, a few folk artists, folk slash rock artists that I wanted to mention where they land. So Bob Dylan's first album was released almost exactly a year after this movie takes place, February 19th, 1962. And then... Alice's Restaurant, which was Arlo Guthrie's debut album, was in 1967. There were so there were a couple of folk albums that were. I read a history of rock and roll book maybe about a year ago that really went through all of this time period, and this was one of the first albums that they mentioned being released, which was Joan Baez released a full album in October of 1960, and then volume two in September of 1961. And it was exceptionally well-reviewed, and it just has a bunch of folk songs, a full album's worth of folk folk songs. And Joan Baez would have been coming out of the Greenwich Village scene, I believe, right? I believe so, yeah. It, it's music. So. It's an album. It's the album that I was thinking of while I was watching this movie. It felt very mood wise. It felt very similar, and sonically, it felt pretty similar. I guess it's a little 
more done up than this movie was in terms of extra instrumentation but yeah i i mean that's part of the plot of the film though right mm-hmm. um with the instrumentation and the way that they're approaching all of that stuff so it all makes sense did you have anything you wanted to say about 1961 or should we talk about personnel and stats let's let's go to the personnel and stats i think i think you covered it all really well uh and really placed it and some of that stuff i'm glad that we have you as a music expert for for this because you obviously understand all that stuff and can place it really well. Finally, so. my time to shine. You got it. Yay. All right. Uh, why don't you run down? Yeah, why don't you run down this stuff? Because this is your research. So the film debuted. It, it came out with the wide release on December 6th of 2013. It had a limited release in New York and L.A. And I think that it also had a release in in the U.K. Because there was some U.K. folks involved with this. And it was like three weeks before something. Don't have the exact date. It had a production budget of $11 million. Wow. <laughs> yeah, which is, at the time period, that's not very much money. It, that's a shoestring budget for, for some comparison. So far in season three of StreamEd, I think we've only covered movies with $11 million budgets. Because didn't Alien also have true? an $11 million budget? I think so, yeah. yeah. So by comparison... Iron Man 3, which released that year, had a $200 million budget. Um, so to get a little sense of the comparison, Frozen, which released, you know, like the same weekend, had a $150 million budget. So it this was really a shoestring budget that they had. Mm-hmm. And when you see the behind-the-scenes stuff, that's one of the things they're talking about. Like, they are just trying to – they don't have enough money to do anything for this film. So, very small budget. It starts out with a limited release and then gets a wider release. And the return... What was fascinating, though, is this film still is something like the the, the week that it released on the limited release. It's still something like the 18th highest per screen average on the weekend it released. Hmm. And this is when it released on a limited release in, like, 50 theaters, something like that. And it made, like, 200 grand or something like that per theater. Just... Maybe not that much, but but it's it was a ridiculously high amount, and so people expected it to to be like a dark horse, like a sleeper box office hit uh, <laughs> when it came out with the wide release. That it was going to be you know this major success. It was so well reviewed critically, and then it came out and flopped um, pretty dramatically. It made thirty three million dollars globally. And so someone might look at that and say, well, that's like a three to one return on investment. But you have to remember that the $11 million is the production budget. uh, And then you're going to do like product and advertising and all of those things. And usually that stuff costs about as much as the production budget, sometimes a little bit more. Um, And one of the things they did for this one, for example, is (laughs) they took out a full page ad in the New York Times uh, with a review that was a tweet from a critic. (laughs) And... Uh, that cost them like $250,000 for that one full page ad. Uh, so that gives you some, some perspective on how expensive it is to advertise these things. So this movie probably only made in box office receipts, something like $10 million. And then usually somewhere around like 40% of that goes to the theater. So the film itself probably only made the studio like $6 million. 
and that's that's a major flop. It's not a good success in the box office, and people were really like kind of like box office people were kind of befuddled at the time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see these articles that are just like, wow, like we did not call this one and what a disaster. And it shows you can't do like a prestige art house kind of films anymore and all of that kind of stuff. Cinema is dead. I mean, basically that's what the things are saying. They're like, no one's going to watch these only pe- people are only going to watch Marvel movies and the Hobbit. And Disney movies and everything else is dead and a lot of doom saying from the from the rest of the cinema scene. Yeah, the did did you have any other stuff you wanted to say about the box office? The only other thing I wanted to add, as as we mentioned, it came out in like the worst possible weekend yeah. for it to come out. It came up against Desolation of Smog and Frozen and Anchorman two and. Like, I don't know, it's hard to imagine just about any movie being successful up against that lineup of films. Uh, Especially, like, Frozen came out and people were not as high on Disney movies at the time period. They'd gone through kind of a fallow period. But Frozen was such a huge success and, like, everybody was just singing that music constantly everywhere you went. And it kind of, you saw so much Frozen merchandise everywhere. And so trying to fit into that space and there just was no room for a movie like this at the time period. Yeah, musical people and fans of like Disney movies were talking about Princess and the Frog and Tangled, which preceded Frozen. But then when Frozen came... Yes, which I loved. Yeah, me too. But then when Frozen came out, it was like everyone was talking about it. It wasn't just the people who have like the niche things that I like. Right, exactly. So... Let's talk about the Coen brothers, and because I think where this lands in their filmography really helps set the stage for what the expectations were. So the Coen brothers were, they were seasoned veterans at this point. I think this was their 16th movie, and they had started in 1984 with Blood Simple, and then they proceeded to make a movie... Uh, there's no period where they go more than three years without making a movie. In fact, there hasn't been a period since then where they go more than three years without making a movie. I'm just going to run down some of the highlights, but I'm not going to list every one of their movies. 1987, Raising Arizona. 1991, Barton Fink. 1996, Fargo. And 1998, The Big Lebowski. 2000, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which is also when they hooked up with T-Bone Burnett, who we're going to talk about a little bit later. And then we hit this period, this run of four movies from 2007 to 2010, where three out of the four of them are just, people loved them, and I think they all got serious Oscar buzz and maybe got, I think maybe all three, three, three out of the four of them got nominated for Best Picture. So that's 2007, No Country for Old Men, 2008, Burn After Reading, 2009, A Serious Man, and 2010, True Grit. So they were coming off, of, like they had had successful movies and they had had movies that people loved, but it felt like this run was just like, they are at the top of their game and people love them and the critics love them and... Audiences love them, and then that leads up to 2013 for Inside Lewin Davis. You'd think they would have had more of a budget based on all of that stuff. 
Well, but again, they didn't. I, th- I th- you know, I think it was sort of intentional. I think they chose not to have a large budget. I think they well, they like to do things independently. Yeah, exactly. and so uh, the kinds of films that they're going to make, studios are not going to look at those and think that's going to be a risk that's worth taking, no matter how good the the directors may be. And you know, you get why they don't financially. It kind of makes sense when you have. It's just a big risk when if you were to dump a bunch of money into a movie like uh, Inside Lewin Davis, and it's just not for it's not something that's going to appeal to every audience, uh, in, nor should it have to. But you can see there's not a lot of money in this kind of film. Yeah, and I think it's also the type of film that if it like if you could see the budget on screen. I think it would feel disingenuous. I don't think it would serve the film. Yeah. The instead it felt like they spent like half their budget on just getting a damn cat to be able to act, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the cat, yeah. yeah. The cat's really so. good in this movie. <laughs> well, the Cohen brothers didn't think so. They hated the cat. Oh, really? So uh, and they had like five different cats because they couldn't get the cats to do anything. I did read that. Because apparently cats are terrible actors. So well, yeah, cats don't do what you want them to do. That's why I thought the cat was so good. Yeah, they're little jerks. But yeah, the cat was great in the movie. But the Coen Brothers did not like it. So uh, anyway, hopefully, hopefully people aren't bothered by our premature cat reveal. Yeah, there's a cat in this movie. Sorry, folks. Sorry. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to say about the Cone Brothers? We're going to talk a little bit more about their directorial style once we get into the movie. The the other thing I wanted to say about the Cone Brothers, so this film is one of the first films in a long time that they had done without their normal cinematographer, um, mm, yeah. who is Roger Deakins. Yeah. And Roger Deakins, in my opinion, is the best living cinematographer and possibly just the best cinematographer of all time. He's incredible. And he works with them on so many different films. So they met up with this guy that they had worked on, like a small thing, a guy named Bruno Delbonau, who is known for, in particular, Amelie. Um, oh, and nice. Yeah, so, so you can see, and there's a lot of similarities you can see in the kind of stylized feel to that movie and this one. So you can see kind of a, a comparison between those. And the other film that uh, he's done recently that ties in with this is The Tragedy of Macbeth. He shot it with Joel Cohen. Mm. So they liked him so much, they brought him back. They also had him on The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. So, and he did my least favorite movie of last year as well, uh, The Woman in the Window. Congratulations. But that movie was shot really well, but the movie was terrible. So very, very good cinematographer. And the cinematography in this film is incredible and one of the things that he talked about is he was in shock working with them because they just let him do his thing and they just got on the same vision for what the film would look like and then they just trusted him to execute it and he had never worked with anyone that did that beforehand so this is why he's come back to them so many times Mm, interesting that does not super surprise me they don't for how serious or serious is the wrong word for how artsy a lot of their movies feel they don't really strike me as people who take themselves particularly seriously in the from the interviews i've read this is 
yeah, all the interviews that uh, that with the actors that work with them say the same thing. And they're also very collaborative, a bit different from most uh, big directors. I think those things kind of go hand in hand, the ability to not take yourself seriously and also accept other people's input. Yeah, I agree, for sure. So the next person that I wanted to talk about is T-Bone Burnett. And T-Bone Burnett was the executive producer on this album. And I'm not sure, how familiar are you with T-Bone Burnett's work, Matt? Uh, Just like moderately, not super familiar. Yeah, so I know T-Bone Burnett because the I'm a really big Elvis Costello fan and if you like when you go through his discography it's a really big deal when he breaks from the first producer he's with and moves on to other producers and one of i think he breaks from his first producer and then moves on to maybe Nick Lowe but then after that he hooks up with T-Bone Burnett and that was the first time that I'd really heard T-Bone Burnett's name so he collaborated with him on King of America which is sort of a country rock infused album and then Spike in 1989 which is just this absolutely absurd album with maybe like it's just like a million different instruments. The thing they said was like, if we have to hire a specific like didgeridoo play, I don't think they really said didgeridoo, but if we have to bring in someone just to play eight bars for this one specific song, because it's what we want for that song, that's what we're going to do for this album. And it's just so eclectic. And after that, you, I just started seeing T-Bone Burnett's name popping up everywhere. And it seems like he has a real penchant for a couple of things. One, he really seems to make cohesive collaboration albums. So the most famous one, which won the Grammy in 2007, is Raising Sand, which is a collaboration between Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. And then in 2010, he also had a um, collaboration between Elton John and Leon Russell called The Union. And then Mm. he also seems to be very good at, like a lot of artists who I love, he's produced the albums of theirs that I love the most. So I don't know if this is because he just fosters an environment where people are able to do their best creatively or if there's some sort of like production magic that he has. I don't think there's a specific sound that any of the albums that he's produced have other than they all just feel very open and full, if that makes sense. But it does. some other albums of his that I that he produced that I love are August and Everything After, which is The Counting Crows, Bringing Down the Horse, which is the Wallflowers album, and of course, lead singer Jacob Dylan, son of Bob Dylan. And then he did The Story, which I believe is Brandy Carlisle's debut album. And then he also did Amidst the Chaos, which was Sarah, Bar- Sarah Bareilles' latest album. So he's someone who, whenever I see his name on an album, I just get really excited because I know... I feel like I know that what's in that album is going to be really high quality, but he's not like a superstar, you know? It's not like I've ever bought an album because it was produced by T-Bone Burnett. It's just like he keeps popping up all these places and, and it's all really good. For sure. And um, 
one of the things that the the behind the scenes stuff shows is a lot of T-Bone Burnett and the work that he does. And he worked very closely with the Coens on this one. Like, you could look at him as being sort of like a third director on the film. Mm -hmm. One of the other, you know, masterminds behind all of this. And putting together the music. And what they showed from the way he was producing is that, uh, like the Coens, just very collaborative. And just a... It was fascinating to watch the behind the scenes and the way that he brought people in and just made everybody feel comfortable and was able to, you know, work with them just to understand the music and what they were going and understanding the music from a story perspective, as well as from a, as well as from a musicality perspective. One of the things he does early on is he brings in Marcus Mumford and just makes him an so or the what what is it the the second producer on the music. Mm. And so those two worked very closely on this film to produce the music. And Marcus Mumford is involved in a bunch of these songs that's done, but it's, it's, it was remarkable how collaborative the process was for the music of this film. And we should say, just in case people don't know, Marcus Mumford is the Mumford of Mumford and Sons. Yes. Which is, uh, uh, you know, one of the big names in kind of like the neo-folk movement. Yeah, and then also did music for a little show that's happening right now called Ted Lasso. Uh, correct, yes. Yeah. And additionally, uh, Marcus Mumford's spouse, Carrie Mulligan, was in this film. And, you know, they had just barely gotten married not too long before this film was going. So, you know, uh, some connection there. Yeah. All right, who do we have next? So next one on the list, we have, uh, you know, you, you should see my face just got happy just even looking at this name. Yeah. This is one of my most favorite actors in the business, Oscar Isaac. Uh, he is incredible in this film. He's so good and so charming, and he's taking a character that could easily be unlikable and somehow just he delivers such a good performance and i loved it so much uh oscar isaac in this film and he's basically in every frame of the movie so it's you know it's a big deal how much he puts into this i was reading the story of how oscar isaac got this part and it is so interesting so the Cohen brothers were really struggling with casting this film mm-hmm. because they decided to do all of the music live, every everything in the film, except for the fair the well performance that, that they play off of the the LP. Everything else is performed live in the film. And that's not something you usually do in this kind of film. You usually do pre-recording and ADR and for this kind of musical film. Uh, And the reason why is because it's incredibly difficult to find someone with good enough acting skills who can also be a credible musician. And so they were searching high and low for for someone that had this combination, and they just kept finding good musicians and good actors, but the connection between them was really difficult. And there's a lot of people that are in the in the acting business that are good musicians, but a lot of those people happen to be on stage. Mm-hmm. And being a stage actor and being a film actor are different skills. Not exclusive skills, but it's 
they're both very particular skills that you have to develop over a long period of time and a lot of work and a lot of talent. And it's just rare to find someone who has both of these things. So Oscar Isaac, the way he gets this audition and he played, he played music all growing up. So he's, he is a musician and he was in a band while he was going to film school and all of these kinds of things. But what's fascinating is he was working on the set of another movie, just a small role. And he turned to this guy that he was eating lunch with and just, they were chatting. He said, yeah, I've got this, I've got this audition coming up with the Coen brothers for a movie that's based on Dave Van Ronk. And the guy says, oh, I played with Dave Van Ronk. <laughs> and it's this guy named Eric Franzen and played with him for like a year in Greenwich Village. And so he's like, oh, really? Okay. So he ended up spending like the next two months in preparation for the interview, just living with uh, Eric Franzen. And Eric Franzen taught him all of Dave Van Ronk's stuff and how to play guitar like in the way that Dave Van Ronk played. Oh, that's uh, and awesome. not only that is they would go out gigging every night to the clubs there in Greenwich, Greenwich Village to open mic nights. And Oscar Isaac was just for two months before this interview or before this audition, just gigging at the clubs, the same clubs that Dave Van Ronk played at and playing his discography at these clubs uh, and other folk music and things like that. So he shows up to the audition and uh, T-Bone Burnett in the interview, he said when he got the tapes from Oscar Isaac's audition that he realized that the Coen brothers are the luckiest son of a bitches on the planet (laughs) (laughs) because he was an amazing actor and an amazing musician. He said he was better than 80% of the musicians that I work with. This is quoting T-Bone Burnett. Yeah. And, you know, he told Oscar Isaac afterwards, you know, if this acting thing doesn't work out, come and talk to me because you have a future as a musician. Um, Little did he know, yeah. Little did he know, yeah. So, so yeah, that's a little bit about how Oscar Isaac got the film or got the part. And he was relatively unknown at this point, yeah? This is his first really big film. He played played Prince John in Robin Hood Mm -hmm. um, with, oh, what's his name? The guy... That was in Gladiator and uh, all of that. Russell Crowe. So he was uh, in the film where Russell Crowe played Robin Hood and he played Prince John. But he wasn't like the main antagonist and he only shows up in a limited, limited amount of scenes. He was very good in that one, but it was kind of a minor role. Uh, and this was his first big one, but also A Most Violent Year, which I think came out at this, around the same time which was a a huge critical success as well. And of course, Oscar Isaac, it's been a long time since we had a stream at crossover, but Lewin Davis is going to go on and rule, what's his position? Arrakis. Yeah, Arrakis. Yeah, Duke Leto Atreides from Dune. Yeah. So. Uh, And... He, uh, Oscar Isaac's filmography since Inside Lewin Davis is just oh, just incredible. He did Ex Machina, incredible film, highly regarded. Force Awakens, X-Men Apocalypse, Annihilation, Dune. And he has coming out probably about the same time that we released this podcast, the TV show Moon Knight, which I don't know if you knew this, but the TV show Moon Knight has had the most trailer views out of any other Disney Plus original show. Oh, I did not know that. It's gotten zero for yeah. me, but 
yeah, it's a it is it's a huge amount. And um, somebody the other day was talking on uh, Twitter, and they were like, "Well, you know, what is it about the Moon Knight character that makes people want to watch this?" And everyone's just like, "It's it, it's Oscar it's Isaac." Because it's Oscar people Isaac. Are, yeah. yeah, people want to watch Oscar <laughs> Isaac. That's the whole thing. So uh, he is an incredible actor, and this film is, I think, his best performance. He he performs really well in everything, but he is so good in this movie. Yeah, makes sense. Do do you have anything else you want to say about personnel, or should we give any advice we have and then move on? Let's do our advice. All right, what do you got? So the big thing for me, as I said, I started watching this one uh, at the D&D Club, and there was, like, people talking in the background. Normally, that's not too much of an issue with me for me for most of the films we do. But for this one, as soon as the first scene started... I saw this was going to be a movie that was about music. The music was going to be performed live and the sound was going to matter. And so I turned it off and made sure that I could watch it in the best sound quality that I could. So I would recommend people to take that into consideration. Just make sure that you watch this where the sound, you have the best sound quality that you can hear and that you can hear the texture of the songs that are being performed. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And so the only advice I would have for this is we've talked pretty extensively, I think, about what this movie is about. Like it revolves around the music scene and folk music. And if that's something that you're naturally interested in and into, I think you can go ahead and just dive right into this movie. I don't think you need to do anything else. But... I would say if that's not something that you're naturally into and you don't have a bunch of experience with Coen Brothers films, I I think I would suggest that you watch some other Coen Brothers films because I think there are some that are a little easier to wrap your mind around than this film is. And if it's not... A subject matter that you have a natural inclination for it might be easier for you to get into this movie if you already have a bit of an understanding of their the vocabulary that they tend to work with yeah that's i think that's great advice and they have their unique style and their unique approach to film and if you're not ready for that you might you might be thrown off if you aren't invested for all the other reasons it's very much like a prestige kind of art film. And so I think people will like it if they're able to watch it under the right conditions. Mm-hmm. But you want to make sure that you're that you're meeting those conditions. Otherwise, it's it'd be pretty easy to bounce off of this. Yep. All right. Let's take a break and we'll be back with our reaction and talking about scenes. And then we'll get out of Dodge. Sounds good. All right, Maddie, why don't you go first? What was your reaction to the movie, watching it? So, I love this film so much. (laughs) Um, It's, I just was so engrossed in this film and every moment of it, like it, it, I got completely absorbed into this film. 
and I have been so excited to talk about it after we saw it. I connected it really connected with it really deeply emotionally. And there's one of the scenes that we're going to talk about. I kept track and I have rewatched that scene, just pulled it up on YouTube and rewatched it. Uh, 42 times <laughs> since watching this film. So, you know, I just really loved it. And I originally had ranked it really high, but it's crept up my list. And so it's moved to the top of my Cone Brothers films. It's in, you know, the top 50 films that I've enjoyed. It's, I just loved it so much. And I don't know, I, I kind of can't wait to watch it again, to be honest. It just connected with me that much. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It For me, I'd say when I finished it, I was probably, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I was probably at about like a seven, seven and a half out of 10 on just like my immediate gut reaction because I was just a little worried. I was like, I I, I bit hard on all of the, misdirection that they put into this movie and so in that sense i think it like kind of worked perfectly on me and then as i just sort of marinated on it and continued to think about it and continued to think about all these other details and realizing i don't think i realized right after the movie was over how much i had bit on all of their sort of red herrings in the movie and then as i was thinking about all those I was like, oh, yeah. And so now I'm just up at like nine, nine and a half out of ten on this movie. It's you know, it's funny. In theater, in musical theater, we have, you have like your standard book musical, which is, you know, it's just a show like everyone thinks about their scenes and their songs. And it goes between them and it tells a linear story. And at the end, you get the answer to the story and everyone's happy. In 1970, there was the rise of what we call a concept musical, which is something that is, it's not like super common in musicals, but it's a lot more common in musicals than it is in films, I think. And some of that, I think, is just like the immediacy of being in the room and being able to have that shared experience that makes the idea of a concept experience a little more palatable but the way I define a concept musical and I think this is the accepted concept is that it's a show where rather than the most important thing being what is going to happen what is the outcome of this story going to be the most important thing is an exploration of ideas or an exploration of topics. So sort of the most famous one is Company from 1970, which ostensibly is about whether or not Bobby is going to decide to get married or whether Bobby will be able to overcome his or now her fears and get married. But that's not really the driving force of the show and they put sort of ended up putting in a decision at the end of the show but it really was just a capitulation to the time the most important part of that show is an exploration of relationships and an exploration of what um what those mean and what they mean to people and what it means to be human and 
I didn't realize I wasn't prepared to have a movie that was essentially the equivalent of a concept musical um, or you know, I wouldn't necessarily call this a musical, even though it has a lot of music, but it really is just a concept movie. The story doesn't go anywhere, and it doesn't go anywhere by design. It is a circle. It ends up where it started. And yet once I realized that, and once I was able to look at all of the vignettes for what they were, then everything sort of clicked into place from there and then it sort of just became this weird thing of for a movie that isn't really about anything I don't fully understand how the Coen brothers are able to make it so compelling to me like I'm looking at all of the different things that make it up and I'm like I just don't understand why I'm so invested in this. I don't understand why I like it so much. And I've come up with some theories, some ideas, but I was excited to talk through it with you and sort of see if maybe you had some ideas or... Yeah, you know, I really like what you said about this feeling very much like a concept musical. And I think that's the way they were kind of thinking of this film as well. They're big fans. The Coen brothers are big fans of stage and they're fans of musicals as well. They're also big fans of, you know, myths and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you have a, in a lot of like mythology, this same kind of idea of characters that don't really change over the course of the story. And so they don't go on a traditional plot journey of like a hero's journey or some something like that in some of these like Greek myths and things like that. But then, so for me, one of the things that I connected with so strongly is just, I connected really strong with, strongly with the folk music. And so it hooked me as soon as I was like, oh, I know these songs. Mm-hmm. And that really sold me on all of that. But I connected so strongly with Oscar Isaac Lewin Davis's struggle to be authentic to his art and fail repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And just the disaster that he goes through and the way that he is on the cusp of of Bob Dylan and the entrance and the like the the way that Bob Dylan kind of changes you could say elevates the folk scene but I I loved how he's there right at that moment and you see the quality and just the 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 ability that he has as a musician and he still fails and the kind of commentary that is on you can do all the work and you can put in all the heart and soul and have all the talent and still just not get lucky. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of things, that theme really connected with me. And Oscar Isaac's performance is so emotionally compelling that it just really wrapped me up in the film. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of the scenes and we can get into some of the specific stuff what's the what's the first scene that we have on our on our list yeah so the the first film is the beginning of the film and also the end of the film yeah which are the same thing because as you said it goes in a circle so the way that it starts out is starts out is showing us the mic and it has the lights showing uh, shining down on this spotlight onto oscar isaac who's at this club the gaslight cafe he 
begins singing this song, Hang Me, Oh Hang Me, which is from uh, Dave Van Ronk's discography. And there's this line that he has in there. He says that it's a folk song. It was never new and it never got old. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he sings through this song in the cafe. And the, the song is very good. It's a great live performance that they end up doing. And the cinematography is really interesting. Gives you this feeling of being this in this cafe and listening to this. He then goes over, talks to the owner of the bar, says, hey, I apologize for what happened yesterday. He goes outside and then he gets beat up in an alley by some mysterious figure that talks to him about, you know, how he was uh, mouthing off and, you know, folk singers and all of that kind of stuff. Which, you know, is kind of a weird thing where you, you think to yourself, who would go and beat up a folk singer, you know? Like, what kind of person sits down and is like, I have a beef with folk yeah. singers and need to go beat one up into the alley. But this is where it starts out the film and it leaves you this question, what is going on? Why is he getting beat up? And all of those kinds of things. So what's really fascinating about this one and the reason why I want to talk about it is they revisit that same scene at the end of the film and you realize that this is the end and it's happening after all the events that are going to be shown in the rest of the film. And so you see what it is that he did in order to get beat up. You see, you see that a little bit beforehand. You see the struggle that he's gone through and the culmination of that struggle with him getting beat up in an alley and deserving it. And then the other thing that's really fascinating, I don't, I don't know if you caught this, but right as he's leaving the cafe, Bob Dylan gets up on stage to perform. Oh, no, I didn't see that. Yeah, so the the last performance is Bob Dylan gets up on stage and you have Bob Dylan performing in the background as he's getting beat up. And this is like, it's supposed to be that this is like where Bob Dylan gets discovered is at this performance. And he's right there Mm -hmm. and he performed right before Bob Dylan performed. And instead of being like discovered by the times and being the face of, you know, this revolutionary movement in folk music, he's getting beat up in, in an alley by somebody's husband. And I don't know. I just, this scene really impacted me with all of that stuff. So I'll pass the time to you. Yeah, I think there, so there's an interesting trick at the end of this movie where right before they start replaying the scene, it has another shot that's very similar to the beginning of the movie where he's leaving, what's their name, the Gorfine's apartment? Yes. But this time, the cat goes to try and get out, but he stops Odysseus? Yeah. Ulysses. Ulysses. He stops Ulysses. Ulysses being the the Roman name for Odysseus. So oh. you're super close, but yeah. You, he stops Ulysses from getting out of the apartment. And at this point, m- my brain was like, I immediately got like Groundhog Day style vibes where it's like, oh, this is a movie that's going to be about him. Like, we're finally going to see him like be able to learn from his mistakes and get better and sort of move on. But then almost immediately after that, it becomes very obvious that they're just going, that the first scene was actually, or the whole movie, I guess, actually was a flashback and they're going to replay the scene. And so it's like, you got that one brief 
fleeting moment of hoping that he was going to be able to learn and that this time it was going to be different because we had heard he was playing at the Gaslight Cafe and he was like, I just played there and you think it's going to be different. And then it's just like, oh, no, it's not. It's going to be the same. It's it's the same. It's always the same. It's never changing for him. And that was very effective on me, I think. Yeah, it's it works really well. And for me, I just connected with it so strongly because I really get this concept of when you're putting so much heart and soul into a project, like, for example, this podcast or many other things that I've done in my life. And it's so hard to get that, like, lucky break. And you feel like so many of the things that you're doing are working so hard over and over and over at something and just getting beat down and constantly facing this cycle of failure. And not that I'm claiming the podcast is a failure. It's too soon for us to really know that. But but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, it's, it's hard to be in the moment of creating this kind of stuff and creating creating something that's meaningful and the struggle that it feels like and how it feels like that you're going through the same thing every single day on this, uh, the same motions over and over. Yeah. The so one of the things I was thinking about when I was watching this is the, there was a evening of like new songwriters that I used to go to in Greenwich village that, one of our friends of the podcast, Andrew Sotomayor, who's a friend and colleague of mine, had invited me to several times. He's a songwriter, and he would sometimes perform at this evening. And it's in Greenwich Village. It's actually right by Stonewall. And one of the nights that I was there, the guy who runs it was talking about bookends for songs. And every song that he sang was a song that had bookends and that's a song as he said i tried googling it and i think it's just a term that he made up but as he said it was a song that opens with one line and then it goes through the whole song and then it ends with the exact same line so it ends where it started but you have all of this new information by the time you reach the end of the song that makes you do that opening line in a different way. And I just could not stop thinking about that as I was thinking about this movie and thinking about how it's essentially structured like a folk song. I mean, I don't think it has... I think the verses and the choruses get a little muddy in the middle because they're not exactly the same length, but it just had that feeling to me. Yeah, I mean, you should have that feeling because yeah, you know who said exactly, like almost exactly the same thing, is T-Bone Burnett. Oh. That the film is deliberately structured like a folk song. That huh. you hear the line, you hear the same line at the end, but you've gone on this journey in between that gives you so much more information about what that line means uh, and the impact of that. And so that happens with this scene. You see the scene at the beginning, and when it happens again, like it's gone through and you're seeing why that scene was important, why that scene is meaningful, but you have the whole story to inform that moment that you didn't have before. It's great. It's, I mean, it. I think the movie would be a lot harder to stomach without this little, this little twist at the end that sort of just puts everything in context and makes you reevaluate everything you've just seen. I agree. I agree. And the other thing that I want to say about this is Oscar Isaac's performance is so good. You know, 
he's he just he plays that guitar and he sings it it is a live performance that is what they got in the take one take the 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 song that's being sung there are other takes that for the shots when it's showing him from behind those are different takes mm-hmm. but anything that's showing him from the front where he's singing and playing the guitar a single take that that's just one performance that he's doing and he just is so believable in the the way that he's singing and one of the things that i think works well in his favor is in folk music you know having the best singing voice is not the most necessary mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. bob you know, dylan bob dylan for example who does not have the best singing voice and Oscar Isaac, you know, he does have a good singing voice, but he doesn't have to be, like, it doesn't have to be as polished or as perfect, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. The pathos is really, really a lot more important. And I, I also love the cinematography of this and the way that it looks, uh, which is very different from the rest of the, the film because it uses a lot of hard, it uses a lot of hard lighting. So lighting that, like, cuts through the scene in the darkness and shines, like, onto the character and makes them very reflective and stand out against all the shadows. But it it doesn't cover all of their face, so it feels like he's in the spotlight. And everything is drifting off to shadows so quickly. And it gives him the feeling of just kind of being alone on this island in the middle of the cafe as he's performing this. And just, like, alone with the song and the emotion, despite people listening to it. And so it really enhances the feeling of of this scene. The One of the, the first note that I wrote down... And I didn't know this, but I was just like, oh, they recorded the vocals live. It just makes such a big difference. And it's one of the reasons that it's really just so difficult to do music on film well, because you want the vocal performances to be perfect, but a film set is not a recording studio. And so it's just really hard to get a take that you're fine, like, putting out there on a soundtrack or putting out there in your movie for the rest of the world in a live recording. But this movie wouldn't have worked if they hadn't done that. So they they made the absolutely right choice. And And it was the choice from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, they it was the they decided we're going to do the music live and that's how this film is going to work. And then they set up everything to make that happen. Smart. Yeah, I, I was blown away. I I, I actually am surprised that the recording session was all live, but I guess that kind of makes sense. They were in a recording studio now that I think right, about it, yeah. so you can set that up pretty optimally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It worked out well for them. The other thing here, Oscar Isaac arranged the song for this. Oh, um, yeah. Hang Me on. Yeah, Hang Me, Oh, Hang Me is, you know, a classic folk song. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he didn't write it, but he did do the arrangement. He arranged this yeah, one, and he also arranged Fairly Well, I think. But what's fascinating about this is I talked about what they did beforehand. So the first thing they do when he gets the part and he arrives to start work on this film, the first person that met him like off the airplane was T-Bone Burnett. Mm -hmm. Uh, He gets off the airplane, mates up with him, and he says, we're going to go get you a guitar. So he goes guitar shopping with T-Bone Burnett and he they played a bunch of different guitars and he wanted him to find one that like spoke to him that felt right. And so they ended up going with this guitar. But then... The next thing that they do is they just bring everybody in that's doing music on this film and they just did pre-recording. They just did recording sessions for for over a week 
and just rehearsed all the music they were going to do. And they laid out all the songs that would be in the film and just practiced those over and over again. And again, it was very collaborative with Oscar Isaac was directly involved in everything that they were doing with these songs and coming up with like, what if we did the song this way? What about that way? And even to the point of suggesting different songs that they were going to do and helping come up with the songs that would be on the on the film. And Justin Timberlake was there and Carrie Mulligan is there and uh, Marcus Mumford is there. And they just spent a week working on the songs before they shot at anything. And I think that's why these performances come across so authentically. They didn't use those recordings. They used them for the soundtrack. But because they played through them so much, then they played the live recordings and it felt like musicians that actually knew their songs performing them. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is like I've played concerts where I'm sight reading for the concert. And then I've also played shows where I've played that music like 50 or 100 or 150 times. And there's no... I mean, I'm sure there are better musicians than me who would be able to bridge that gap better. But there, there's no faking that feeling of just having something in your fingers or in your hands, like, so totally and completely that it's like you can judge things here and you can speed up a little bit or you can just bring this note out a little bit more and you don't even ha- you don't have to think about well, what if I play the wrong note? What if I mess it up? It's, there, yeah, it's, there's no faking it. Yeah, you just can't. And it, the way this is filmed, it's so close up to all the music as well. Yeah. Like it's live performances, but it's also right in your face live performances. And it's like the camera is on the guitar as Oscar Isaac is playing. He's He can't fake it and he has to get the performance into it. In any case, I will stop monopolizing the time on this scene. You know, it's technically two scenes and probably you could say kind of the most important scene of the film. But yeah, it, there's a lot that goes on here. Um, if there's anything else that you have to say about it. No, there there is not. I mean, it's fine to spend a lot of time on this. The next two scenes are actually pretty short. So we can we can go ahead and move on to... Oh, no, you know what I did learn from when I was re-watching the scene on my phone that Amazon X-Ray had a little, one of their little tidbits at the beginning of the movie is that when T-Bone Burnett and Oscar Isaac met for the first time, Oscar Isaac said that T-Bone Burnett just like gave him a Tom Waits album and then just like locked him in the room and gave him enough time to listen to the album. Yeah, it's uh, so they went guitar shopping. They show up at T-Bone Burnett's house and he just says, have you heard the new Tom Waits album? And he's like, no. And he's, he turns it on and just leaves. Uh, he's gone for an hour. And Oscar Isaac's like, OK, I guess this is what we're doing. And that was his introduction to, you know, the, his first day on the job was buying a guitar with T-Bone Burnett and then sitting in his house for an hour alone listening to Tom Waits. Oh, I don't. I'll I'll look up what the twenty what the new T Bone Burnett album would have been, and I'll I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Are you familiar with Tom Waits, Matt? I am familiar with Tom Waits. Very familiar with Tom Waits, <laughs> and he's a musician that I like a lot. I like his older stuff a little bit more, and so I haven't listened to whichever album this is, but he's got one song, "I Don't Want to Fall in Love with You." Oh, I don't know that, uh, one. which I highly recommend. It's very good. 
and very uh, much a folk song and all of those yeah, things. If you once you've heard Tom Waits, you will never mistake anyone else for him. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, so a very unique voice. Yeah. So the next scene that I wanted to talk about is the scene where Lewin and Jean get into a fight in the park, and so this is after Lewin, Lewin's found out that she's pregnant and he's trying to get the money to pay for the abortion and this is them talking about it and one of the things that one of the things that I love so much about this movie is it's so ambivalent about whether or not Lewin is a good person or not and there's I I think that's on purpose. I think it's just like, if you want to live this life, if you want to do this, you don't really have the luxury or maybe even the mental space to fully worry about whether or not you're a good person or not. And there's a lot of places where he's just unadulteratedly not a good person. He's not very nice. He's not very nice to his sister. And... He's not always very nice to Jean, but there are also a lot of moments in this scene where it's like where Jean is kind of being the not very nice one. And Lewin is just sitting there and taking it, which is the right thing to do. Jean's the one who's pregnant and is having to go through all this stuff. But the only real fight that he puts up is that at one point he says, you know, it, it takes two to tango here. And it's... <laughs> yeah. I, I assume they put that in mostly just so that you, like... To set your mind at ease that it wasn't... That it was consensual on, on both ends. Right. But she's really blaming him here for something that... Is definitely both of their faults. Yeah, for sure. And Carrie Mulligan's performance is so good. Like, it's so... The, I don't know what the right word for this, but like the antithesis of it, because you see her perform that 500 miles song um, Mm -hmm. before, and it's just like, you know, so like sweet and all of those things, but she just starts blasting him with the F words, just F bomb, F bomb, F bomb and yelling at him. And she's like, you know, for every future reference, I just want you to know I'm protecting you and like every person you ever sleep with, you better double up on the condoms. Right. Yeah. And all of that stuff. And it's just her personality. I loved her performance in that and the way she goes against type in being so emotional and aggressive in a way that I found so endearing. Well, and they do one of my favorite things, which is her opening monologue of this scene. It's not super long, but I think it's like 10 to 15 seconds is a wonder of them walking through the park. And it is, there's no cuts. It's just them walking and her berating Oscar Isaac, berating yeah. Lewin and the... It, it's really nice for them to give them... I mean, A, when you do walk and talks like that, it really lets the actors show off their chops because there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. But it also gives you the nice, uh, unadulterated view of the New York park. Yes. New York City yeah. park. And, you know, it the way that it's shot looks beautiful and also sad throughout the entire film. And it looks, yeah, I, I really love that. And 
additionally, the other thing is it kind of shocked me. Shocked isn't the right word, but it wasn't what I was expecting because Gary Mulgan did another film this year, 2013, called The Great Gatsby, and her character is so dramatically different from this. Mm. And so she showed up, and I was like, oh, there's Carrie Mulligan. I love her. And then she starts, you know, just lambasting him. And I was like, oh, she's playing a different character. And you really see her acting chops in comparison to the character she plays, Daisy Buchanan, in The Great Gatsby. And so, I don't know. And I love, as well, I thought it was really interesting the way that they approached the topic of the abortion. And... You know, Oscar Isaac just immediately says, you know, I'll pay for it. I'll make sure it happens. There's a doctor that I know, all these things. And you can see that they're dealing with the difficulty of the topic, but not in a way that makes the abortion seem like a shameful thing at all. I don't know if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, 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 it does. I, I think that was intentional. So I, I enjoyed that about the film as well. And uh, where she says, you know, if if it's Jim's, then I very much want to have it. But if it's yours, then, you know, I'm not so sure about that. And... I don't know. I, I thought it was... I thought they had good chemistry together as the well. The two of them play off of each other extremely well here. And it it's one of those relationships that just, like, uh, you want the answer. You want to know, like, what the history is here. And you want to know, yeah. like, are there other things he did? Or is she really just mad at him for this one night and the issue that it's causing them? And... Yeah. it's really great and then at the end of the scene he he asks her if she can keep the window open so that the cattle come home and she just screams <laughs> at him again yeah yeah it's great <laughs> that cat the darn cat the darn cat it's great the other thing about her performance that i got the i don't know if you saw this so tell me if i'm just like imagining this but she's yelling at him and braiding him and being very aggressive but at each part it feels like she also is endeared by him. And, like, there's still some amount of love. I don't know that she's, like, interested in in, in a romantic, you know, entanglement at, at all with him. But, like, she's still endeared. Like, she's mad at him, but also loves him while being mad at him. And I feel like that's a layer that was in the performance. I don't know if I'm... No, I don't think that. you are. Because I don't think she would go to the diner or the restaurant with him in the later scene if that weren't true i think it's supposed like i think you're supposed to know that there's underlying love even if she is extremely mad at him and hates 97 percent of what at the moment hates at this moment yeah exactly feels like there's a few smirks in there that's like she has she pulls her punches on them just just a teensy bit but one of the things Oscar Isaac talks about is that with, with the film is he's preparing that Lewin Davis is a lovable, generous, you know, person that's easy to get along with and has lots of friends, but not this week. Mm, interesting. And so it felt like that comes through a little bit as well in the in the performance here. So I don't know. Yeah, th- this one was so good. And I, I loved their performance together. I loved the way it shot. The diner looked great as well and just the way they play off of each other and the the way they are foils for each other because Jean is she loves the music and she loves the folk music but also she wants you know a family and a steady career and the like art of it is not nearly as important to her as it is to to Lewin Davis yeah and so I love that foil that they have of each other that you see them reflected in each other 
Yeah. I like what you said about the this him being a generally good guy, just not this week, because I think that that segues us pretty well into the next scene that we're going to talk about, which is when he's having dinner at the Gorefines, and this is her his Upper West Side, I think it's Columbia Professors is what we learned from the beginning of the movie. Yeah, and yeah. he he shows up to return the cat, and then he sort of gets harangued into staying for dinner and gets wrapped into a conversation with a classical music professor, a professor who loves Baroque music or whatever it is he loves. And then they they share dinner, and eventually he he gets convinced to basically busk for them, play play a song at at the table and he plays the song and in the middle of the song the the lady Gorfine, the wife who had done the cooking starts singing the his dead partner's harmony harmony, the harmony and the go back and watch this scene there is a moment and it felt like so real to me watching it both times where you see Oscar Isaac be like, go through the full gamut of, what is that? Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that, but I'm going to keep going. Oh, you know what? Never mind. I'm not going to keep going. I'm done with this. I have to say something. And it all happens in the space of like three seconds. Like two seconds. Yeah. And as someone who has done that like as an accompanist or as someone who's like trying to play a rehearsal or a leader rehearsal it it felt so real to watch him just run the gamut of those those emotions yeah yeah for sure it's oh that uh this is one of the first times in the film that i had to stop i had to pause it because i was crying too hard after this after this scene because it is a rough one emotionally the other thing like, she jumps in to sing it. It's so awkward. And, you know, he hates it so much. Yeah. She's she's singing pretty well, I mean, and she she's does. getting she the part. Good, yeah. And then, I don't know if you noticed, but when he had left their apartment before when he stayed in it, he put a record on, like, as he was leaving. Yeah. And the song that he played was the same song that he's playing there. And it has, I believe it's the same one. And it has the part from his partner, uh, who's voiced by Marcus Mumford. And it plays the harmony. So you hear the harmony there. And so when she jumps in with that and is singing that harmony, you realize, like, this moment, what it is, like, something horrible has happened to his partner that normally sings that. And it's the grief for his partner that is playing through like his response to her singing the part even more than that she's interrupting him it's it's that's mike's part and he's gone and she can't be singing his part yeah and then he explodes on her and it's really not you get it like with all the knowledge of what's going on in his life it makes sense but it's just not a nice thing to do to someone who's invited you into their home they fed you they have let you stay there multiple times and yeah maybe you got talked into performing a song you didn't want to perform but but it's a rough outburst it is it's it's very aggressive and very hard and like she cries and it's just so emotional and so hard and then she comes back with the cat yeah this isn't my cat (laughs) where's its scrotum 
<laughs> and this is the Coen brothers so much because you have this sublime mm-hmm. moment that is very difficult and raw emotionally interspersed with like absurd humor yep. that he has brought back the wrong cat. And I think that the way those things play together is they, uh, again, they, they love this tension of these opposites that bring out the, the emotions of both things at the same time. And it highlights the, the grief that he's going through, but also the kind of the absurdity of his situation. You know, he gets kicked out of the house and it's just when I saw it, I'm like, oh, that relationship is done. And it's the one like it's the only people that really still loved you. Yeah. You know, everybody else kind of loves him, but this was like his safe place. And he ruined it because he just, you know, he just couldn't he couldn't listen to her sing the part and i get why he couldn't do it but it's just so sad that he that he does that at that scene yeah do you have anything else to say about this scene or should we move on to our last one the the one thing i wanted to add this isn't from this scene but it's after this scene when he comes back to the gore finds later in the film Mm -hmm. and this is another one that just made me cry so bad i'm crying just thinking about it because he comes back to them and they have completely forgiven him yeah it's really sweet it's so sweet. And they just, you know, uh, Mr. Gorfine, he just says, you know, people grieve in their own way. And she comes in and gives him a big hug and everything is completely forgiven. And they totally understand the outburst that he had. And that moment really just hit me hard because I get that. And it's the love that they have for him. This just unconditional. It's a great, uh, a great friendship. Yeah. What's the last scene we're talking about? So the last scene is where he, so Oscar Isaac or Lewin Davis, he decides he's going to try to take an opportunity to, to turn his record into some kind of financial success. There's this weird, almost like a short film right before this, where he's traveling with John Goodman's character Mm -hmm. in a road trip across over to Chicago. And that part's really weird and has some really dark stuff in it and I mean it just that part of the film is very dark and depressing and terrible and a lot of terrible things happen but then he eventually arrives his shoes full of slush no money at all with just his guitar um, into this this guy that runs a label there Goodman is his name I can't remember his uh, no, Grossman. Grossman, yeah. Bud Grossman, yeah, played by F. Murray Abraham. So he shows up at this at this theater where Bud Grossman works and, you know, science artists and all of those things. Bud Grossman is not there. And so the person there says, you know, you can sit out in the theater and wait for him. It'll be like an hour or so. And he just sits there and waits for him. Bud Grossman arrives. He shows him the album. And Bud Grossman says, hey, come play something for me. This is the scene that I watched 42 times. Mm. Um, and he... They go and sit down in this theater. And everything's like... This is the other scene that has really hard light. Every other scene's in, scene in the film uses very soft light. That uses a lot of diffusion to reflect on the character's surfaces. That gives it kind of like a fuzzy kind of heightened look to it. This one, though, has this hard light that's shining in the background and leaves Bud Grossman so much in shadow. And then they're diffusing some of this light onto Oscar Isaac's face. And they start the camera away at kind of a mid-shot over F. Murray Abraham, Bud Grossman's shoulder. And he sits down to play this song. 
and he plays a song called The Death of Queen Jane. He plays it, you know, it's a live performance. It is, there's nothing to fancy this song up at all. He just sits in the chair in this theater with this chairs packed alongside of him. It's not even cleaned up or anything. And with the, the other guy just sitting across the chair from him. And the camera starts off at the distance and he gives this performance. And this performance is just phenomenal. And the camera is slowly pushing in. And the light is shining on Oscar Isaac's face. Uh, He's looking down at his guitar as he's playing. He gets to the end of the song and he looks up into F. Murray Abraham's face and into the camera. And we're seeing right in his face and he goes to a verse in acapella and finishes this verse. And the song that he sings, The Death of Queen Jane, is a very emotional piece about Jane, who is it, Jane Seymour the wife of Henry VIII as she was having a son and she ends up dying in labor. And the the way that King Henry is, he doesn't want to give her up and is unwilling to, to do the procedure that will end up killing her in order to save save the child but in the end it doesn't matter what it is what it what he does and he loses her anyway the performance is so emotional and so moving and the way the camera is moving in and it's lit you feel like this is the moment it's so good and then bud grossman says i don't see a lot of money in that yeah and the performance ends I don't know. This this one really got me in, in as he performed it. I loved it so much. I'm curious what your thoughts are though. Yeah. So the I had mentioned that there are like two. There are just all these places along the movie where it, I felt like I was finally getting a handle on what the story was, and I was like, oh, here's finally going to be his big break. This is going to be the first thing that goes right for him. And then of course it wasn't. And then after this, F. Murray Abraham's character does give him a lifeline and he's like but i do like i can get you some work if you're willing to sing harmony and willing to sing with a group and he he turns him down he's like no i don't i don't do that i can't do that i was like oh okay so now now the journey is going to be like he has to get over his dead friend or his 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 dead partner so that he can do that again so that he can have a career so that he can have a life but of course that isn't even going to be what the movie is going to end up being. So this scene had two of those subversions where like my desire to pull a cohesive hero's journey to pull a cohesive story out of this movie just kept pulling and pulling and pulling. And it was just nowhere. There's nowhere to pull it from because that's not what this movie is. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the Coen brothers are doing this on purpose because the way that it's shot with the light shining on him and the camera moving in, when that happens in a film, that's a heroic moment. Mm, yeah, you don't that makes do sense. this when somebody loses. You know, you you don't bring it in just this slow. The way it comes so slowly on the dolly forward and over F. Murray and Abraham's shoulder, and then just is right on his face, and you're seeing his face so expressively with the light shining on it. And again, like I said, that is the kind of thing that just does not happen for someone who's losing you do that for the heroic moment yeah and especially with the brave 
the character's brave choice to finish the song a cappella and really just trust their emotional truth to carry that moment. And it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. It's unsuccessful. I think that the act that F. Murray Abraham is supposed to be recommending to him, I think it's supposed to be Peter, Paul, and Mary. Mm. And, you know, one of the biggest folk groups from the time period and very successful. So he's kind of offered the door in on that and just doesn't take it. So yeah, oh, this one really had me emotional when I watched it. The performance is amazing. It really is. Yeah. I mean, I, we said it at the beginning, but like if it's not live, it doesn't, it doesn't work. If there's even a second where you get taken out of it because of even a halfway dodgy lip sync, it's just like, it's over. It's fake. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, so this is the part that I went really deep on. Ooh, okay. So, yeah, okay. So this song, The Death of Queen Jane, I went to go research this song. This is the oldest song in the film. Mm-hmm. And it is a surprisingly controversial song. It is telling the story about Jane Seymour and Henry VIII. I don't know how much you know about Henry VIII and Jane Seymour and the Tudors and all of that. Uh, well, I know the musical Six now so so yeah you know a bit right so you you know that king henry you know not a nice dude generally Mm -hmm. the way that he's portrayed and you've got queen jane his third wife and they're trying to have a male heir and he you know was not successful at this also king henry known for you know leaving the catholic church and starting the key the the church of yeah so this song was there are like 150 versions of this song just from the time period going forward um and so i read through this folklorist who had done like a dissertation on this song (laughs) and trying to figure out their question was whether queen jane had had a c-section or had had a natural birth and if you look on the the background for this one the history you'll see that like on wikipedia it just says um Unlike the ballad, where the queen dies of cesarean section, the real Queen Jane gave birth naturally and died of a fever 12 days later. Mm-hmm. Turns out Wikipedia is wrong about this. Oh. Yeah, so this is fascinating in the research. So what happened is uh, these ballads came about, and they were essentially forms of propaganda that were put together. So the Tudors, Henry VIII and his family, had kind of put together this, Had were trying to put the propaganda out that she had died afterwards. And that it was from a natural birth that she'd gotten sepsis and died afterwards. The Catholic Church hated Queen uh, King Henry and they wanted to make him look bad and made it, wanted to make him look like he didn't care about Queen Jane. So they started having people put together other versions of the song in which it was a cesarean section that was performed. Oh, what? <laughs> and so this is where these two versions come. And it's these two sides fighting over like an interpretation of of this story now what's important to understand about this this song where the song comes from is an irish ballad which has a lot of connections to catholicism but lewin davis's character is welsh Mm -hmm. and the Tudors are also welsh and so the performance that oscar isaac puts in on this one leans a lot more on making king henry look like a sympathetic character and it makes sense for someone with welsh heritage 
to be to have the song and to know it in a way that treats King Henry in a more sympathetic light, if that makes oh, sense. Oh, yeah, smart. So, and then the other thing that's fascinating about this one is the trip that he takes over to Chicago to do this, he passes on the way back Akron, yep. which is where his child, he has a child that he has never seen that he finds out about earlier. And he passes by and never goes by there. And so the way this song is looking at someone who is dealing with the emotion and the trauma of of this birth and and a child that they've just had that they've been wanting, but also they had to give up what they loved in order to have it, forms a really interesting parallel at this moment. Yeah, and that was one of those other places where I was like, oh, it's going to be about him finding purpose with being a dad and finding out he's a dad. But nope, that was a red herring as well. So the other thing that I found out, I'm still going on the song. But the other thing is the first ver- the first recording of this version of the song that he performs was put together in 1971. Mm. So about 10 years after this perf- performance that he's supposed to be doing here. The, this version of the song doesn't exist at this point. And it's put together by the Bothby Singers, I think is what they're called, the Bothby Group. Mm-hmm. And is, you know, a middling success for them. It's on their album, and their album, you know, is reasonably successful and leads to them becoming one of the bigger names in Irish folk music, which is, you know, a pretty niche genre. So it's not like it's financially successful, and, you know, Bud Grossman's right about this. But I, it does have a lot of these things that get picked up in folk music afterwards, um, kind of uh, some approaches to folk music and the way that it's taking these kinds of these kinds of songs, and so you kind of get this idea that he's a little bit ahead of his time with the with the performance. If this if the performance was his ten years before the Bothby singers ever got it, then you're seeing something that's that is a little bit of ahead of its time and is you know, kind of this pure artistic creation that's that shows his exceptional talent, but it's just not the right time for it, mm. if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it does. I like that. So that's that, that's all the, the deep dive that I went on this on this song. That's great. Yeah. Normally I'm the one doing the deep dives on the music. Right? I know. So there we go. The tables have turned. The tables have turned. Let's go ahead and move into cleanup and then we'll we'll wrap this this baby up. Sounds good. Uh, we were actually able to cover almost everything that I had in my notes over the course of the show. I only have one remaining thing for cleanup. And it's pretty interesting, I think, or at least I found it interesting. There's a poster for a movie at the end of pretty yeah. close to the end of the film do you remember what that movie was the incredible journey the incredible journey which will would later be remade into homeward bound in yes. 93 which i think we talked about for jurassic park but i got bad news for you which is do you know when the incredible journey came out um i don't know when the incredible journey came out but i'm going to say i think like 73 it, well, closer than that. It was November 20th, 1963. So. Oh, okay, yeah. So I was 10 years late, but also it came out after this story. Yeah, That's great. so a little, little odd there. I, I, I think there are a couple, like, I think it. the goal here was, I think it's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek 
jab at our what I experienced for this movie, which is our desire to turn things into a hero's journey or turn them into a cohesive story. I think this is one of those, and I think also the same with the big reveal of the name of of the cat. I think both of those are supposed to be sort of tongue-in-cheek jabs at, at our expectations. I think so as well, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I I loved I loved the movie Homeward Bound as a kid, mm-hmm. and so I'm also familiar with the Incredible Journey. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, I recognize that, and I got this, you know, oh, he's been on a journey, except kind of not really, you know, but yeah. you know, we get it. Uh, so. I'm sorry if if you're gonna put a date in the movie, like, and have someone as date obsessed as me, I'm going to look all this stuff up so sorry about that you know what i love it i think it's great so i have only two things one of them we kind of mentioned but i just wanted to emphasize it Mm -hmm. is at the end of the film when he's getting beat up in the alley it is it, it is bob dylan playing and this is a bob dylan song that was never previously released until the soundtrack so it came came from the archives yeah, until the soundtrack came out, and so it, was, it went on the archives and was is playing over this. And I really think that the the purpose here is to you know get this idea that he just barely misses out on uh, on Bob Dylan, one of the biggest names ever in music. But additionally, the character, the person that the film is only loosely based on, some of the events in this story come from his book, but the character is dramatically different. Mm-hmm is Dave Van Ronk, apparently like the nicest guy ever from what everybody has to say. He worked very closely with Bob Dylan and like they played together and Bob Dylan gets a lot of songs from him. And there's a recording of Bob Dylan singing Hang Me, Oh Hang Me that we should put in the show notes and really shows the difference between Dave Van Ronk's style of Hang Me, Oh Hang Me and Bob Dylan's and their approach to folk music. So we should include that one in there. And I've got it in the show notes. So okay, awesome. I, I should have mentioned when we talked about T Bone Burnett that he got his start as a guitarist in Bob Dylan's band. Yeah, yeah, he played with Bob Dylan. He was there for all of this stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. It's great. So then the other thing, the the Gorfine's house, mm-hmm. which is you know it's a house that's on the east side. But it's still, you know, pretty cramped, like the hallway and all of this stuff. And it's not huge, but it's comfortable. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's and, not a house. I'm pretty sure that's an apartment. Well, I just meant but, house. I meant home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The place where they live. So the reason why they chose this apartment mm-hmm. is because when the Cohen brothers were going to film school, they lived in that apartment. Oh, cool. So they showed up and knocked on the door, and the person that was living there was, you know, shocked. He opens the door, and it's the Cohen brothers. <laughs> He's like, oh, hi. And they said, hey, um, weird question. Can we borrow your apartment for, like, a week? <laughs> and he's like, okay. And they said, we used to live here, and we wanted to film this, like, in this apartment because we had a lot of nostalgia for it. And he said, I mean, yeah, sure. So they paid him, put him up in a hotel. and But the guy that lived there, they just let him back on set, and he just was there on set for everything that they shot in his apartment. Oh, that's uh, cool. And the guy has an essay that he wrote about this when the when the Coen brothers were in his apartment shooting these scenes. <laughs> so so we should link into that if we can find All it. Right, yeah, but, I will do that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Okay, so that will do it for Inside Lewin Davis. As always, if you want to give us some 
feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A, and you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah, and if you want to send us some longer thoughts, you can reach us at podcaststreamit at gmail.com, and we would love to hear from you. As always, thank you to Asturial, David Stewart, friend of the pod and beta listener, for his help on editing everything. And next week, we're going to be back. It is the 80-year anniversary of Pride of the Yankees. So that's 1942 film, Pride of the Yankees. And who boy am I. We're recording in beginning of February, so I've got the baseball itch, and I am stoked to do a baseball movie, even if it's... Uh, I don't know if we have to put an explicit explicit warning on the podcast if we say the Y word, but we'll research that before next week. <laughs> For sure. I'm very excited that one, but but I knew when we chose this that, that it was going to be um, a, a some tension for Zach uh, to watch this one. Yeah. So what do you got for a closing question? All right. So there's this moment where, you know, in the Queen Jane song where Oscar Isaac, you know, travels across the country and arrives in this, in this executive and he gets a moment to perform a song for him. So my question is, if you were in that moment and you had just one instrument and you sitting down with this uh, person for this basically impromptu interview, um, or audition what song are you playing Mm. yeah it's a little tough because i don't the majority of music that i play is like i'm sight reading or i'm reading music so i don't actually have a ton of full songs memorized that i can just play from beginning to end all the way through off the top of my head uh, but what I can play all the way through is the overture to The Fantastics. The Fantastics is a show that I've music directed twice. And then also when I was playing for Princess Cruises in Alaska for a summer, it was my show-off piece. So that's really the only thing that I can just sit down cold and just reliably play from beginning to end. You know, you get get a singer and put a piece of sheet music in front of me i can probably play most anything get through most anything for that singer but that's really the only thing i have in my repertoire that's just like i can play this this solo piece cold no music just play it right there yeah. uh, on the spot yeah do you have yeah, anything i mean this? yeah so so it's really tricky and the other thing that i was thinking along these lines is it's hard to know like what would be a song that you'd sing that you know like could be successful mm-hmm. versus a song that you want to sing because it speaks to you. And I think that Lewin Davis goes with that second one. Yeah. So I don't know. There's a lot of songs. Uh, I, I have sung a lot in my, in my history and, but I think the one that I would go with and I, you probably don't really know this song at all, which would be a shocking thing, but it is a song in Spanish and it's called Si Vas Para Chile. Mm. And it's a song that, for one, like I can sing it a cappella, you know, impromptu, and I have it perfectly memorized, so it would be easy for me to do it. But also, it's meaningful to me, uh, really deeply. It's kind of like known as the unofficial anthem for Chile, the country Chile, and it's a beautiful little song, very much in the style of like a folk song, and it goes on the same kind of journey that a folk song goes on, 
and that's probably the one that I would have to end up picking here because it fits like all of those parameters. Nice. Yeah, that's a good answer. My question for you is a bit I don't I don't actually have an answer to it because my answer is in the question, but in this movie as we talked about Lewin Davis gets talked into busking for his for his guests and this is something that I know pretty well. When you're a piano player, you frequently get asked to play piano. That is for people, and it can happen in social situations. It's just a part of your job that is useful to people. And in the same way, a doctor might get asked, you know, medical questions or something all the time. Like, oh, you're a doctor? I've been having this problem with my throat. So my question for you is, is there anything in your profession that like in social situations people are like oh can i use your professional expertise for x y or z that happens to you frequently Uh, so i'm an english teacher Mm -hmm. and so people will ask you to like read their book oh god and (laughs) no i don't (laughs) want to read your book (laughs) have zero desire to read your book people will be like i've been working on something Uh, would you read it and like give me feedback and i you know you want to be polite but no No. not a chance in hell i am not going to read your book that is you know it is so hard to blow people off on it too because they feel so passionate about it and i just know in my head that sounds like absolute torture because one i know it's going to be just terrible and it's not going to be good and two, like, that's something you pay people for. Yeah, that's worse. Like, that's, that's not a favor you do. That's like somebody, you're going to pay somebody, you know, five to ten grand to sit down and do that for you. So, no, I have no desire to read your book for you. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's the one for me. That's good. Yeah. And my, my answer was in the question. But I will put um, Matt's mailing address into the show notes so everyone can send him a copy <laughs> oh, no. of their book. And send me your manuscript yeah, so, well, so I can read it and give you feedback. Oh my gosh. All right. Uh, That'll do it for us this week, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.